This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, we're looking this morning at verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, hear the word of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for these verses that are before us, and we pray for your help as we turn our attention to them. We pray for the light of your Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would instruct us. And above all, Father, we pray that the reality of the gospel of which these verses speak uh, would be a reality in our own hearts and in our own lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had a time when you wanted to speak up for Christ in a conversation, an opportunity had come, and you kind of felt this this nudging, this desire to say something about who you are as a Christian or about Christ and what he did, and you you wrestle and you agonize, should I say something or not, until the moment's passed, it really is too late. And then later, you're, you're replaying the conversation and wondering, why didn't I speak up? Well, there could be any number of reasons. Um, one of our favorites as evangelicals is, well, you know, I practice friendship evangelism, and I need to get to know somebody well, and they need to get to know me well, so that there's a bridge, so that there's an opportunity to, to share Christ, to establish that I'm not a kook before I start talking of the gospel and sound, at least to them, like one. Now, there's some merit to that, and in fact, that's a far more effective way to share the gospel with people than, say, just cold call door to door, although the Lord can use that too. Certainly in the context of a relationship is, is how the gospel spreads best. But if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we just have to admit we're afraid. You know, maybe it will raise more questions than, than I can answer. Or maybe if we're honest with ourselves, we'll have to acknowledge that we're a little bit ashamed. We're afraid of what they might think of us. Have you ever felt that way? I know I have. But we're in good company because the Apostle Paul recognizes that temptation to feel ashamed, and I suspect at times felt it himself. Now, we pick up here in verse 16 with Paul saying, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why does he say that? Well, as we look at this passage, I want to look at it in terms of a couple of questions, asking and, I hope, answering a couple of questions. 
First question that's raised by this text as we look at it is, why would anyone be ashamed of the gospel? In other words, why would Paul even say this? Why would Paul say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Well, this statement that when he says this may arise out of what he's already said to the Romans. Uh, Last time, last year when we were in Romans, we, we looked at verses 8 through 15 where Paul is addressing the Roman Christians and in almost an apologetic tone explaining why he has not yet come to them in Rome. Now, you recall, this was not a church Paul planted. It was not one that he had firsthand association with, although he seems to have known a number of people who were in the church. But he says in verse 10 that he had been praying, asking somehow by God's will he might come to them, that he longs to see them, verse 11, to minister to them and to enjoy the fellowship that they would have, verse 12, uh, verse 13, that he intended and wants to come to them, but has so far by circumstances been prevented from doing so. In verse 14, he speaks of this sense of obligation that he has with the gospel, both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. Verse 15, not only does he have obligation, it's not just a matter of duty, but there's an eagerness there. He's eager, he says, to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then in verse 16, he says, for, the word connecting, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, does Paul say that, perhaps, because he he suspects the Romans might think that maybe his hesitancy in coming to them had been somehow being ashamed to declare the gospel of Christ in the imperial city. I mean, that's one reason he's been slow to come to us. Well, Paul very quickly says, no, he's obligated with the gospel. He's eager to preach the gospel to them, and he certainly is not ashamed of the gospel. But the very fact that Paul says that means that he acknowledges that the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel is, in fact, a real one. The temptation to be ashamed of the gospel is very real. Why? Why would someone be ashamed of the gospel? That's our first question. Well, there are a number of reasons. Paul himself gives some reasons. We go over to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 18. You'll notice what Paul says. For the word of the cross, that is the gospel, the message about Christ, about Christ crucified, the message of the cross, the word of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then a little bit later in verses uh, 22, 23, he says, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but what do we give them? We preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and folly, it's foolishness to the Gentiles. For Paul, some reasons he might be ashamed of the gospel uh, are rooted in his own Jewish heritage that for the Jews, at least the, it seems the majority of them in his day, the gospel was a stumbling block. It was an offense. 
It was a scandalous thing because it said that their long-awaited Messiah, their Savior, their Deliverer, would die a humiliating death on a Roman cross. And that was more than most Jews could swallow. That their glorious Savior, their Messiah, would die that ignominious, humiliating death on a cross. It was a stumbling block. There was, it was just too much to get around. That was not at all what the Messiah would do. And that, and that he would be so humiliated, and by extension, the Jews would be so humiliated, was, as Paul says, a stumbling block. So there was this, there was this religious root for being ashamed of the gospel. To say a message, it would be so offensive to his fellow Jews. Another reason, he says, is because it's foolishness to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, that is the non-Jews. It's foolishness. What, what does he mean by that? Well, to the Jews, there was a religious obstacle. Christ crucified was a stumbling block. But to the Gentiles, the whole thing was just folly. It was foolishness, he says. And the Greeks prided themselves on wisdom. You know, on what made sense to humanity and this idea of, of, of Christ rising from the dead, this idea of the miracles and things that he did, uh, to, to the Greeks, it didn't add up. It was, it was foolishness. And Paul, given his cosmopolitan experience, his education, felt keenly the sense of foolishness that came along with the gospel to those in the Gentile world. So both from his religious background as a Jew as well as from his interaction with the broader world, not only of Jews, but of Gentiles, Paul felt very keenly why the gospel would be a stumbling block, why it would come across as foolishness, and therefore the temptation to be ashamed of it and not want to bring it up. That was Paul. What about us? What about us living in the 21st century? Well, I suggest to you that the dynamics that Paul describes, are exactly the same. There's religious offense in the gospel, a stumbling block, not so much in claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. More in our day, the offense comes in claiming that Jesus is the only Messiah, that Jesus is the only way of salvation. That is a hideous offense in our culture. To, to claim that exclusivity, that there is only one way and that every other way is wrong, does not lead to salvation. That is a huge offense in our society. And we interact with our society enough to have a sense of the, the offense that that causes. Of course, we're only being faithful to Christ himself who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the scriptures that say there's only one name that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And that, of course, is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we're only being faithful to Christ when we say there is just one way. Uh, and yet we recognize that that is an offense to our culture. So there's this religious offense when we claim that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way, the truth, and the life. But there's also that broader offense as well, that intellectual offense of the gospel that we claim, as we just celebrated, that Christ was born of a virgin, 
a miraculous conception, uh, that Christ did miracles throughout his ministry in the last 200 years, 150 years of biblical scholarship, at least among the, the modernists, has been to get at the historical Jesus. You know, if we can just strip away all the superstitious, superstitious, miraculous stuff, we can get at who the real Jesus. Well, that's nonsense. You can't separate Jesus from his miracles. And yet that arises out of this, this, this rejection of miracles from the start. That that's impossible, of course. The universe is this closed system. No supernatural power can come in from the outside and change things. The laws of physics are fixed. We claim Jesus did miracles, that he changed water to wine, that he walked on water. He fed this vast crowd with, with meager resources, five loaves, two fishes, so forth. We claim that Christ died a violent, bloody death. But three days later, came out of the grave alive. That sounds reasonable to you. Well, it does, because you've been sitting in church for a very long time. Tell that to your secular friend who never grew up in a Christian home, who has never set foot in a church except maybe for a wedding or a funeral, and see what kind of reaction you get. Jesus died, but three days later, he was alive. And you get some sense of the intellectual offense of the gospel. So for the very same reasons Paul might be tempted to feel ashamed, you and I would be tempted to feel ashamed. The religious offense of the gospel, but also the intellectual offense of the gospel. It's the same. Why would anyone be ashamed of the gospel? Well, Paul wouldn't have said that unless that was a very real temptation. We've already looked at some of the reasons that that temptation might be there. The second question I want us to think about, and in the rest of the text I hope answer, is how do we overcome that temptation to be ashamed of the gospel? Paul says this, he acknowledges that temptation, but he says, I'm not ashamed. He wouldn't have said that unless the temptation was real, but he says, I'm not ashamed. That temptation does not defeat me. I do not succumb to it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, how can we arrive at that place where not only not being ashamed, but we have a boldness for the gospel? a readiness to speak of Christ. Then we're not ashamed to mention his name. How do we get there? Well, let me give you several ways from this passage. I think it is really is Paul's foundation for why he's so bold with the gospel. Number one, we need to recognize what the gospel is. What the, what the gospel is. We live in an information-saturated society. Never before in the history of the world Have we had access to the kind of information, to the sheer volume of information, important and trivial, that we have today? And it can be overwhelming. It can be numbing. It can certainly be distracting. We need to recognize that the gospel is not just one more idea out there floating around among many. It's not just one more web page on the Internet. Look at what Paul says. We need to recognize what the gospel is. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for, because, this is why, it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Now, when we talk about the gospel, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the message about Jesus Christ crucified, a Savior who died for sinful people, to reconcile them to God. Well, Paul says that that message 
is the power of God. He doesn't say the message is about the power of God, interestingly. He says the message is itself the power of God for salvation. The teaching of it. The telling of it. Certainly the preaching of it. What happens when we share the gospel, whether from a pulpit or across you know, a table with coffee or in a Sunday school classroom, when we tell another person about Christ? Well, God says that his power is present in that. That that very act of, of, of in faith in Christ, telling another person about Jesus, is unleashing the power of God for salvation. That's why we believe in preaching. That that is the predominant method which God has given for the spread of the gospel. And God says that in the preaching, in the teaching, in the telling of the gospel, the power of God, the omniscience, omnipotence, the power, all power almighty power of God is at work, is brought to bear. Do you believe that? Say, well, I shared the gospel with somebody and they just laughed in my face. You know, what kind of power is that? Well, it doesn't say the power is going to be immediate. It doesn't say the person is going to be converted all at once. But God will either draw them to himself at some point or that gospel will serve to further harden them. Paul did say, you know, we're the aroma of life to some and the stench of death to others. But God accomplishes his purpose. Be assured of that through the spread of the gospel. He says it's the power of God for salvation. Now, to be saved can mean different things, the way the word, the Greek word could be, could be understood. It can mean a temporal salvation, to be delivered from sickness, for example. And sometimes in the gospels it's used that way, although I think there are bigger, bigger implications of the word. But every time Paul uses that word, it's translated for salvation, salvation here, he uses it to refer to our relationship to God. He's not talking about temporal deliverance from, from a calamity or sickness or whatever. He's talking about our being reconciled to God or being brought back to right relationship to God. So what overcomes the temptation to be ashamed? Well, recognizing what the gospel is, that it is the power of God for salvation. And so we can have confidence in declaring the good news. We don't have to manipulate. We don't have to try to coerce any of those things. Paul's very specific, and in, in, in particularly when he writes to the church at Corinth, that he didn't do that kind of thing. First Corinthians 2, he says, When I came, I didn't come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 4, my speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do we want to try to argue? Do we want to try to build a case for the, the truth of the gospel? Certainly we can do that That's part of it. But ultimately, they're not going to be brought from death to life except by the power of God in the gospel. And so, yes, we want to be as, as well prepared and knowledgeable and equipped to, to answer questions or to build a case for the truth of the gospel as we can be. But ultimately, our hope rests on the gospel itself as the power of God to bring a sinner from spiritual death 
to spiritual life. And that's something you and I cannot do. Only God can do it. But in the gospel, he does do it. Paul later says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, we've refused to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's what we're about. Just the open statement of the truth. Trusting that God's power will be brought to bear. So that's one reason, recognizing what the gospel is. It is the power of God for salvation. It's just not it's more information, but it's the power of God. Second thing that we can do that helps us overcome this temptation is recognize who the gospel is for. Who the gospel is for. Maybe you've been tempted to, to clam up with the gospel because you, you thought, well, this person is so vile. They're so evil. They're so offensive. They're so far from the church, so far from Christ, there's no way they could be saved, certainly not through me. Really? Well, look at what Paul says. He says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. To everyone. To all kinds of people. Not just certain kinds, not just those who grew up in church. Not just those who have some knowledge of the Bible. Not just those who outwardly are good people or successful people. He says the gospel is the power of God to everyone, to all kinds of people. Certainly all different races, languages, you know. But also to everyone, regardless of how apparently sinful they may or may not be. Many sins, deep sins. Heinous sins. The gospel is the power of God for all kinds of people. Now, there is a qualification. This isn't universalism, but there's a condition to everyone who believes. Who believes. There's there's a condition that has to be met. We have to believe in the gospel. Now, the object is implied here. It says to everyone who believes, believes what? Well, not just who has some vague, undefined faith, but those who have believed in the gospel. And that faith itself is not some sort of work, something that earns us merit. It's it's merely a response. It is receiving uh, what God has for us in Christ. And of course, you know, ultimately, even that act of responding in, in receiving the gospel is, an act, is God's grace to us, but that doesn't diminish the fact that the gospel calls for a response And that response is to trust in, to believe in that Christ of whom the gospel speaks. And Paul says it's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, that may seem like a strange statement or an incidental statement, uh, but in the rest of Romans, especially chapters 9, 10, and 11, that that relationship of Jew and Gentile in the gospel is, is worked out at some length. And Lord willing, we'll get to that eventually. Uh, for the Jew first, I think Paul is saying not just temporally, not just that they came first in terms of time, but that the gospel and the roots of the gospel were laid within Israel, were placed within Israel. And God made promises to them and uh, gave blessings to them. And Paul speaks of those, and we'll see more about that uh, in Romans. Uh, but that there is a priority for the Jews. You know, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. He said, salvation is of the Jews to the Jews first, and also to the Greek, to the Gentile, to the non-Jews. Now, while there may be a priority in the gospel for the Jews, 
there is an equality for Gentiles within that same gospel. In fact, Paul was himself the apostle to the Gentiles. That was his commission to carry the gospel outside the bounds of Israel to the world, to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. So certainly uh, Gentiles as well. Uh, have a part in the gospel. That's not to diminish their part, that he says it's for the Jew first. It was in time, but also in terms of God's working in, in redemption. There are promises and uh, blessings that are there for the Jew first, but certainly also for the Greek. So recognizing who the gospel is for, basically for all kinds of people who will humble themselves, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the gospel can save anyone who will believe in Christ. Another thing we need to do to overcome temptation to be ashamed is recognize what the gospel provides. What does the gospel actually do for us? What does it provide us? So we're reconciled to God. How? What does it do? Well, he goes on to say in verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, scholars have printed lots of books, written lots of words about trying to figure out the nature of the righteousness of God. What is Paul just getting at there? You can basically break it down into three possibilities. Uh, one is, of course, righteousness is an attribute of God, one of his qualities. We would acknowledge that. Uh, righteousness in terms of the fact that God does what is right, he is just, and so forth. Um, actually, in this context, that's a little bit scary. That was what Martin Luther struggled with for so long was the sheer righteousness of God and the fact that he himself was not righteous. That was a terrifying thought. Should be. Uh, another uh, way of understanding this is as an activity of God. God's righteousness acting. And this is really the main way God's righteousness is portrayed in the Old Testament. That God in his righteousness acts on behalf of his people for their deliverance, for their salvation in various places uh, it speaks of God's righteousness uh, involved in their salvation. Um, and this one argument for understanding it that way, go, you can look down at verse 18. For the wrath of God, God acting in his wrath. Well, they could say, well, here God's acting in his righteousness. There's a third main way to understand this, and that is it refers to a status from God or standing from God, a position I would argue that this is what Paul is getting at primarily, although certainly in conveying to us this standing of righteousness, giving us this righteousness before God, God is acting in his righteousness. I think uh, there is some overlap in all three of these. And righteousness is an attribute of God. He acts in righteousness to provide righteousness for us. Apart from that righteousness, we can't be in relationship with God. We can't earn the kind of righteousness that God requires. We haven't, and we won't. But God himself provides a righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, that we need. And Paul will uh, explain this statement much in much more detail uh, and more length in the remainder of the book of Romans. But just to look at a couple of places that I think back up understanding it in that way, you'll turn over a page uh, or two to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Romans 3.21, he says, But now the righteousness of God, there's that phrase again, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
for all who believe. The righteousness for us that is provided to us who believe. By the way, it's interesting how, how similar verse 22 is to 16 and 17. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. One other reference, Romans 10 verse 3, even more clearly uh, reflects Paul's understanding that this is a righteousness that God provides, a right standing that God gives us. Uh, in Romans 10, verse 3, Paul is talking about the Jews, his desire that they be saved. And he says in verse 3, Romans 10, 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They were trying to establish their own that comes from the law rather than, as he says, uh, receiving and submitting to the righteousness that comes from God, that God himself provides. So just a couple of examples, there are more, uh, that show that Paul certainly understands the righteousness of God as something that the Lord gives to us, something that we receive, something that we submit to. And it does seem to fit the argument of Romans as a whole, um, and certainly the first half of it, which is, is dealing with this question of how can we be right with God? Uh, and various statements that Paul makes in different places, for example, uh, Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans is arguing about how we, as a sinful people, can be right with God. That's the gospel. Romans is about the gospel. And so certainly it seems that the, the best way to understand the emphasis of that phrase, the righteousness of God, well, it is an attribute of God, and it, it does describe his righteous saving action, uh, is to understand it as a righteousness that God provides for us to be in relationship with him that we could never provide for ourselves. You see, a way to overcome being ashamed of the gospel is to understand it better. That Christ died for our sins, yes, he paid the penalty for our sins, absolutely, that was necessary, but God also provides for us in the gospel that righteousness an alien righteousness, a righteousness not our own, but that is credited to us, that is given to us. Now, Paul will later talk about how we actually become righteous in Christ. But for now, he's simply saying that this righteousness of Jesus is credited or imputed to you so that you have a standing of righteousness before God. So we need to recognize that. And then the fourth thing that he mentions here is recognize how the gospel is applied. That it is, as he says, from faith for faith or faith to faith. Either translation of that preposition is valid. Well, that's been written about that. Uh, I think the problem comes in in trying to take this too literally from, from faith to faith. From you know, Is it faith of the Old Testament to faith in the New Testament? Uh, from the faith, from the faithfulness of God to the faith of the believer, uh, faith in the law to faith in the gospel. I think that's trying to parse it too finely. I think the repetition is, is simply an effort to say it's by faith entirely. It's by faith, as the NIV puts it, from first to last, from top to bottom. There is no other way that we can be saved. And that accords with chapter 3, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I think Paul's just emphasizing that it comes by faith. And understanding that, again, helps us overcome temptation to be ashamed. That this is a gift. 
that we receive by faith. You know, there's so many people you will talk to about Christ whose conception will be Christianity is do's and don'ts. Christianity is, you know, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, be this way, and God will love you for that. Maybe you'll get into heaven if you're good enough. That's not Christianity. That's Islam. You know? That's not the gospel. The fact is, one way to overcome the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel is, is exactly this fourth thing. Recognize how the gospels apply. The idea that the gospel is a gift, that righteousness is a gift to people whose consciences burn, or maybe you're so seared that they don't. But that's good news. It's not that you have to work your way to heaven. It's that God provides in Christ everything we need to be right with him, to know him forever. He quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, The righteous shall live by faith, or as some would render it, the righteous by faith, those who are righteous by faith shall live. Which actually, I think, fits the argument here better. But simply citing uh, the Old Testament, uh, simply to back up what he's saying. That this is nothing new. By the way, that same phrase is, is quoted in Galatians 3 by Paul and then later in Hebrews 10. The righteous by faith shall live. It's normal to feel some temptation to be ashamed of the gospel because we recognize that it is odious. It is offensive in the eyes of the world. And Paul recognizes that and maybe feels something of that temptation. Well, how do we overcome it? Well, better understanding of the gospel and an increasing experience of the reality of the gospel and its saving power is the way to overcome that sense of being ashamed. Well, the goal is that far from being ashamed, that we would say with the Apostle Paul, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in another place, in Galatians, Paul says, not only am I not ashamed, I never boast in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. So far from being ashamed, let us boast in what God has done for us in Christ and in all who will call on his name in faith. Let's pray. Father, may we never be ashamed. Yes, Lord, we can see why we might be because of the world's understanding and view of the gospel and of Christ. And Lord, many times that arises out of misunderstanding, although certainly in everybody, Lord, from their own fallen and sinful hearts. But Lord, may we never be ashamed, but may we be filled with joy as we understand more and more the riches of the gospel and as we experience more and more its power in our own lives. And Lord, use us to see others come to Christ. Lord, give us that same boldness that Paul had, not in ourselves, but in the gospel, in the cross of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.